Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Professor Ari Mermelstein. Professor Mermelstein is Associate Professor of Bible and Second Temple Literature at Yeshiva University. He is also Chair of the Department of Bible, Hebrew, and Near Eastern Studies. Additionally, Professor Mermelstein is Assistant Director of the YU Center for Jewish Law and Contemporary Civilization and the Israeli Supreme Court Project, which I don't think we're going to get into today, which maybe maybe another time, uh, both based at the Cardoza Law School. Professor Mermelstein earned his PhD in Ancient Jewish History from NYU's Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies and also has a law degree JD from NYU Law School. Professor Mermelstein's academic works include Power and Emotion in Ancient Judaism, Community and Identity in Formation, which was a finalist for the 2021 National Jewish Book Award in the category of scholarship. Additionally, Professor Mermelstein authored The Genesis of Beginnings, Creation, Covenant, and Conceptions of Historical Time in Second Temple Judaism. Today, we will be discussing one of the most fascinating personalities in Jewish history, Josephus. Um, Professor Mermelstein, thank you again so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I look forward to the conversation. Great. Uh, Just uh, to start off as way of background, what was the state of the Jewish nation, the Second Commonwealth, at the start of the Common Era? Sure. So uh, maybe I should just begin by kind of outlining what we mean by the Second Commonwealth. So by the Second Commonwealth, we essentially mean the period that runs from approximately 538 BCE, when Cyrus the Great founds the Persian Empire, defeats the Neo-Babylonian Empire, takes over the Near East, allows the Jews to return from exile to rebuild the Second Temple, which they do in the year 515 BCE. The Second Commonwealth ends with the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70 CE, so that when we talk about what is the state of the Second Commonwealth uh, around the turn of the first century CE, we're basically talking about what is the tail end of that very long period. So I I think the point to start with is, in in thinking about this period, is the, um, the rise of Herod the Great in the year 37 BCE. So Herod in the year 37 BCE actually succeeds the Hasmoneans, the Hashmonaim, who were kings uh, during the second half of the second century BCE until the year 37 BCE. Herod takes over as king in 37 BCE and rules until his death in the year 4 BCE, following which his territory is divided up between his three sons. For our purposes, the most important of those three sons is named Archelaus. Archelaus rules over the area of Judea from 4 BCE until 6 CE. And what happens in 6 CE is that a faction of Jews goes to the Romans and says that we are tired of being ruled by this despotic family of the Herodians. We would rather be ruled directly by you Romans than by anyone associated with Herod's family. The Romans had basically assumed direct rule over Israel in the year 63 BCE, so about a generation before Herod becomes king, but they're ruling through local Jewish leaders. It's not until the year 6 CE that the Romans assume direct rule at the behest of the Jews, who would rather be ruled by the Romans. What happens at that point over the next 60 years is through the reigns of a group known as first prefects and later procurators with just a very brief interval when you once again have a resumption of Jewish kingship, the Romans are ruling directly through sort of low-level administrators, low-level governors who are empowered to rule over the Jews. So that's sort of the political state of affairs. The other piece of it, while you do have a faction of Jews that support being ruled by the Romans, you have, according to Josephus, an equally vocal faction of Jews led by somebody who he says was named Judas the Galilean, who in that same year, in the year 6 CE, says that uh, there there is no legitimate human authority to rule over the Jews. And he and his faction advocate basically reverting to some sort of theocracy in which God will rule directly over them, perhaps 
perhaps through some sort of priestly aristocracy. But what we have, according to Josephus, at the turn of the millennium, with the resumption of Roman rule, is essentially two factions, a faction that is supportive and a faction that is opposed to Roman rule. And what Josephus does is Josephus traces the, the thread of his narrative, essentially traces the development of that anti-Roman faction from Judas until the outbreak of rebellion in the year 66 CE. So that's sort of the state of affairs in the political domain. In the religious domain, Josephus talks about the outbreak of sectarianism a couple of centuries before the period that we're talking about now. Uh, and he talks about a number of different sects. If we read Josephus at face value, the sense that we get is of groups that are of outsized importance, maybe groups that are especially large, right? But that's that sort of is the, the focus that Josephus places. But in fact, historians assume that the number of members of these sects, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, was probably relatively little. Um, historians generally estimate that there were probably between 500,000 and 2 million Jews living in Israel around the turn of the millennium, maybe 10 to 20,000 of whom were aligned with these sects. The rest of the Jews, the rest of these 500,000 to 2 million Jews were what historians refer to as common Jews. These are basically Jews who are living at a subsistence level, agrarian lifestyle, and they are loyal to, you know, the basic uh, basic details of halacha. So they're Shomer Shabbos, they're Shomer Kashrus. They are dedicated to service in this in the Beis Hamikdash, right? Basically, what we would regard as sort of the core tenets of halacha. That's what your average Jew at that time was loyal to, and you know, in general, that's sort of like the state of affairs on the religious domain. Josephus does talk about the Pharisees as being especially influential, which doesn't mean that every Jew was a devotee of the Pharisees, but it does mean that they commanded widespread respect, at least at that time. So that's sort of uh, what we know about uh, what's happening in Israel, kind of in the religious domain, um, as well as in the political domain. Okay. Um, just I, I should just add one, one final point, which is sort of how this uh, how this also affects the socioeconomic domain. So what we what we gather is that there was a significant divide uh, between the haves and the have-nots, that there were people who really had been empowered by Herod in particular, families of Kohanim, who um, in the middle of the first century BCE were not from the traditional line of the Kahuna Gadol, of the high priesthood, but they basically became the landed aristocracy. They were the people with influence and wealth. They were basically the leaders of the Jews, especially once the Romans came into power in that first century CE. And um, they were basically ruling over a massive population of people that were living at a subsistence level. And you can see that in a number of ways. One way in which historians identify the fact that there is this socioeconomic divide just within Jewish society is the fact that one of the first things that the rebels do with the outbreak of rebellion in the year 66 CE is they burn the debt records, which again, suggests to historians that there's not just a political dimension to the rebellion, but there's also some sort of a socioeconomic dimension to the rebellion as well. Can you just uh, take us, uh, uh, Professor Marmelstein, to the background and early years of Josephus? Sure. So um, Josephus describes the what we know about Josephus's life in greatest detail is what we gather from uh, from his work called Life of Josephus. At the beginning of Life of Josephus, Josephus basically tells the story of his life as follows. He says that he was born in the year 37 CE, right? It doesn't say 37 CE, but he's born in the year 37 CE to a prestigious family of Kohanim. He actually says that he is one eighth Hasmonean. Um, so I think he, right, he said one eighth Hasmonean, which just points to how influential in the public consciousness the Hashmonaim continued to be long after they had actually ruled. Um, he says that he was a child prodigy who was consulted by Jews on all areas of halacha, and that he he measures his influence by an embassy that he was sent on by Jews in the year in the year 63 CE. He says that in the year 63 CE, when he's 26 years old, a number of Kohanim had been taken by Rome to be tried on charges that Josephus doesn't specify. 
But he says that the Jews dispatched a number of important leaders to try to advocate on behalf of these Kohanim in Rome. Um, Josephus was one of this small embassy, which in Josephus's mind, and you know, there's truth to it, that Josephus was a prominent person in Jewish society at that time. He doesn't say how long he was in Rome for, but he says that he returns to Judea on the eve of the revolt, probably in the year 66 CE. So it sounds like he was in Rome for a significant amount of time, which is important because it means that even before he arrives at Rome after the war, he's already become acquainted, become accustomed with some of the mores of the place. Perhaps he's already made social contacts. Uh, and, and he says that uh, he arrives back on the eve of the revolt, and that's sort of um, his participation in the rebellion sort of gets started at that point when he's back at around the year, uh, at around, around the age of 30. So he participates in the revolt. He is the governor of the Galilee. Um, what was his record um, as the governor and as a military commander in the revolt? Sure. So Josephus actually tells the story of his tenure as commander as governor in the Galilee in two different places. They're not always consistent, but I'll, I'll try just for the sake of simplicity, I'll try to synthesize them uh, to, the, to the degree that I can. He says that in the year 66, there was still an open question about which way the Galilee would go. Would the Galilee join the rebellion or would they not join the rebellion? Josephus says that there were also multiple factions within the Jerusalem council that was responsible for overseeing the rebellion. He identifies himself more with the peace camp that was hopeful that the Jews could still avert direct war with the Romans. And he says that he was dispatched by this kind of peace faction to go to the Galilee and try to get a lay of the land, try to figure out which, uh, which people were thinking of participating in the rebellion and trying to persuade them perhaps to lay down their arms, perhaps to take a wait and see approach rather than committing themselves at that early date to, uh, to full scale revolt. Um, it seems like he failed in that regard. He didn't manage to convince whichever rebels he encountered to lay down their arms. And he's subsequently appointed by the Jerusalem Council as governor and as general over the Galilee. Now, it, it's important to understand that even at this point, and this is now late in the year 66 CE, the Galilee is not necessarily aligned with the rebellion that has now broken out in Jerusalem. And that's going to make Josephus's task in the Galilee, basically bringing them under the umbrella of this revolt, trying to create a certain amount of unity, it's going to make his job very difficult. And, and that basically is the story that he tells. Basically, what Josephus says is he comes to the Galilee, he finds that there is infighting within any particular city. So any particular city talks about Tiberias, talks about Sepphoris, talks about some of the other leading cities. There is um, infighting multiple factions within each of these cities, some of which are more supportive of Rome, some of which are more supportive of revolt, and he has a hard time navigating those local politics. Um, he also has a hard time navigating some of the rivalries, the regional rivalries between cities. So he discovers that some of the leading cities are actually vying for, uh, for supremacy, right? Which city is going to become capital of this newly founded region? And so that's another complication that Josephus has trouble navigating. And he also has trouble navigating the attempts by some of the more, again, this is the way that Josephus tells it, by some of the more committed rebels who are resentful of Josephus, first of all, an outsider, second of all, perhaps he was more of a moderate. Uh, and so he, he faces challenges posed by these local rebel leaders. Um, some of the cities end up seceding to a certain extent. So for example, Sepphoris, which is one of the cities that Josephus had to conquer and reconquer multiple times, Sepphoris ends up basically seceding from the rebellion and aligning themselves with the Romans. And so Josephus never had an easy time trying to bring the entire Galilee under the umbrella of the rebellion. What, um, what Josephus does say is that he succeeded in setting up sort of an administrative and judicial structure within these cities. And he also says that at one point there was an effort to recall him, basically to depose him as governor in the north by the Jerusalem council. But basically he says there was this accusation of mismanagement, which in light of what I've said is not unreasonable. He wasn't really successful. And um, Josephus says that it wasn't really motivated by mismanagement. In one of the accounts, he says it was motivated by jealousy. In another account, he says it was motivated by bribery. 
But what Josephus does say is that he was able to evade capture by this embassy of Jews coming from Jerusalem. Uh, this embassy of Jews coming from Jerusalem to depose him was also accompanied by a thousand soldiers. Josephus talks about how he was able to evade capture. Eventually, he's able to talk his way out of it which is one of the things Josephus has incredible survival instincts. He's able to talk his way out of this, and um, he's able to, to um, win reinstatement as governor and uh, general in the north. His tenure as general ends in, uh, ends in disgrace. You know, essentially, he's captured at, uh, at Yotvata, and historians are divided as to how to take Josephus's account. Do we assume that Josephus was genuinely a moderate, was genuinely a member of this peace party who was trying as, as much as possible to try to avert disaster, perhaps to try to leave lines of communication with the Romans open, somebody who was trying only to wage a defensive war? That would be one way of reading it if we take Josephus's, uh, if we take Josephus's statements at face value. Other historians are more skeptical and say that actually Josephus probably is whitewashing history and probably Josephus was a committed rebel uh, at an earlier phase. And when Josephus talks about his role in some of his later writings, that's already at a point where Josephus has aligned himself with the Roman cause and Josephus maybe is presenting a distorted picture of his actual role from the past. Did he have a military background? Did he engage in, in actual warfare? He didn't. There was, there's no good reason for Josephus actually to have been appointed to this post. Um, it could be that because of his diplomatic role in this embassy that I alluded to between 63 and 66, so perhaps there was a sense that if there's somebody that they need to send to the north, this is a, a difficult diplomatic situation because there is this, this isn't a region that is necessarily under the control of Jerusalem. This is a region that to a certain extent is the Wild West. There isn't real unity. So perhaps there was a sense that Josephus could, uh, could try to coax these people into joining the rebellion, could try to coax them into unity. It may be that that was more the motivation because it's not clear that he had any real credentials that would have made him a successful general. So uh, as you alluded to, how and when did Josephus which sides? So Josephus's tenure in the North begins in late 66 and um, manages finally to put together an army of people in the Galilee. And um, the fighting against the Romans begins in early 67. And basically the story of, of his tenure as general in the North, basically fighting against the Romans, it really only lasts for about six months. Um, as I said before, Sepphoris ends up seceding and aligns themselves firmly with the Romans. The Romans are able to use Sepphoris. Basically, they, are, they house a garrison in, um, in Sepphoris. They really use it as a base of operations. And um, Josephus sort of fails um, in battle after battle. And, and his last stand is at the city of Yotvata. Yotvata was, was at a strategic location in the north. And the story that Josephus tells is that his army and the city are decimated. He talks about 40,000 people as having lost their lives. The Romans are victorious. They raise the city to the ground. And uh, Josephus, who, as I said before, was had remarkable survival instincts. Josephus uh, manages in the heat of battle to evade capture. And he says that by divine intervention, and again, this is going to be one of Josephus's consistent themes. Josephus is always saying, God is on my side. God is on my side. Um, Josephus says that he manages in the heat of battle to discover an underground bunker. And he says in this underground bunker, there were 40 other dignitaries, people who were aligned with him, some of his, um, some of his commanders, some, some other important leaders. He says many of his soldiers and many of the commanders actually committed suicide in the heat of battle, but that wasn't for Josephus. Josephus seeks refuge in this underground bunker. This underground bunker, it turns out, is discovered by the Romans after a couple of days, and the Romans try to lure Josephus out. Josephus won't have this. Initially, Josephus is inclined to surrender, but these people that are in the bunker with him refuse to allow him to hand himself over, and they threaten, uh, they threaten his life if he tries to do so. Josephus then says that uh, he's not going to uh, not going to surrender. They advocate committing suicide, and Josephus then delivers a uh, an extended monologue 
uh, that opposes suicide, both on philosophical and religious grounds. And um, he convinces his compatriots, these 40 other people in this bunker, convinces them not to commit suicide. And um, the compromise essentially is that they're going to draw lots. And as each successive person draws his lot, that person will kill the person next to them, uh, leaving only one man standing. And that one, that last person standing will be forced to commit suicide. Now, um, the, the uh, choosing of lots proceeds. Josephus is one of the final two people. Josephus had committed himself to this whole process. And again, Josephus' survival instincts kick in and he manages to convince this other person that had survived with him, you know, we're better off not killing each other, right? One of them was to kill the other and the final one was going to commit suicide. He says, let's just surrender, right? We're of no use to the Jewish people if we kill ourselves. And Josephus has received a dream that he says, a repeated dream from God that empowers him to surrender to the Romans and become an advocate on behalf of the Jews, to try and serve as sort of a fifth column from within the Roman camp, trying to essentially avert disaster. He's going to now represent the Roman cause to the Jews, trying to win the favor of the Romans so that perhaps what he'll what he'll manage to do from, from within is, to, is going to convince the Jews not to proceed with this rebellion. Um, and so what he does is he surrenders. One of the first things that he seeks is an interview with the general Vespasian. He uh, famously uh, predicts for Vespasian that Vespasian eventually will become emperor. Um, and that prophecy, which sounds very much like the encounter that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is said to have had with Vespasian, that prophecy is actually referred to in other Roman sources. So it seems to have acquired a certain amount of renown. Vespasian comes to believe in that prophecy and he treats Josephus especially well. Josephus becomes a prisoner of war for a couple of years. He's, he's uh, captured in, in the summer of 67, remains a prisoner of war for about two years after which he's released. Um, so that's sort of the context in which Josephus ends up leaving the Jewish camp and becoming a member of the Roman camp. And, and once he's a member of the Roman camp after he's released as a prisoner of war, what role, role does he play with Roman society, with Roman leadership and the emperors, Vespasian or other leaders? Sure. So, um, so Josephus, after the war, is brought back to Rome. Um, and this is where historians are divided as to how exactly to characterize Josephus's role within Roman life. An older view took Josephus sort of as a client of the Flavian dynasty. Flavian dynasty basically consists of three emperors in succession, Vespasian, um, who rules until the year 79 CE, his son Titus, who rules from 79 until 81, um, Titus's brother Domitian, who rules from 81 to 96. Uh, so an older view took Josephus basically as a client of the Flavian dynasty, whose role essentially is to write on their behalf propaganda celebrating the defeat of the Jews, perhaps speaking to Jews, but certainly celebrating through the writing of propaganda. That was an older view. And um, historians, I think, in general now are a little bit reticent about continuing to adopt that view for a few reasons. Uh, one reason is that the benefits that Josephus receives from the Flavians, citizenship, housing, a stipend, wouldn't necessarily distinguish himself from the many other clients of the emperors. We shouldn't necessarily imagine him as an especially important person. He wasn't never promoted to a high rank. He's never promoted to the equestrian rank, never, never promoted to the senatorial rank. The few Romans that Josephus says he did associate with don't seem to have been particularly important. The person to whom he dedicates his final few works, his name is Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus doesn't seem to have been an especially important person. Josephus does say that he gave Titus a copy of his first work of Jewish War, but it's not clear that he had any other contact with Titus. Uh, there's a reference to Josephus in a contemporary Roman historian that refers to Josephus as the um, the way that he puts it is he's a no he's the noble captive, uh, so he he was remembered by contemporaries as a captive, not as an emerging really important member of the elite aristocracy. That's sort of the old view. I think that the more persuasive view actually takes Josephus not as a propaganda 
microphone on behalf of the Roman emperors, but rather actually as an advocate on behalf of the Jews to Roman society. And this, I think, is a theme that crosses Josephus's works, that basically Josephus becomes an apologist on behalf of the Jews. He's someone speaking to his Roman audience on behalf of the Jews, rather than speaking to Jews on behalf of a Roman audience. And one of his larger arguments on behalf of the Jews to the Romans, both to the emperors and to his Roman society, is that Jews actually are the best of the Romans. This is the way that one historian has, has put it, that Jews were the best of the Romans. And the way that Josephus describes this is that by being loyal to their Jewish tradition, it turns out that the Jewish tradition and Roman values intersect exactly. And so therefore the Romans shouldn't blame the Jews for having rebelled against them because in fact, Jews and Romans share so much in common and that it's by being loyal to Judaism that Jews actually end up being loyal to, to, um, to Rome and to the emperor. That really is the way in which Josephus talks about Judaism. And it seems like that's maybe a more faithful understanding of Josephus's place within Roman society and the, the message that he seeks to promote to them and to the emperors. What are the major writings of Josephus? And did Josephus have a, a sense that his writings would be historical in the sense that you know, I think it was it was Winston Churchill who wrote history, and he said, "I'm a historian because I'm going to write the history of the wars and the empire and all that stuff." Did this, did, what did he write, Josephus? And did he have that kind of sense who what his writings might one day be? Sure. So, um, so Josephus primarily wrote four different works. The earliest of them is called uh, Jewish War, War of the Jews. I should say Joseph, everything that Josephus writes is in Greek. He does complete War of the Jews, Jewish War, in the year 79 CE. He actually writes, though, that even before he completed Jewish War, he did write something in a Semitic language, either Aramaic or Hebrew, that he says was directed, obviously, to Jews. He doesn't say exactly what was in it, but it seems to have been a, an account of the war, perhaps an abbreviated version of Jewish War. Um, but he, everything that he writes is in Greek. He actually says that he had to work very hard at Greek, um, that he actually ended up employing a couple of Greek assistants who maybe helped him with his grammar, perhaps helped him um, bone up on his on his knowledge of Greek literature. He writes the Jewish war in the year 79 CE, and it's important to understand the anti-Jewish sentiments that was swirling around Rome at that time. What I said before is that Josephus is directing this message in Rome, to Rome, to the emperors at that time, and the war against the Jews held great propaganda value for the Flavian dynasty, and that's really because the Flavian dynasty had no real credentials to rule as emperors, and they really fell back on their success in defeating the Jews over the course of a couple of years as the basis for their claim to the throne. And they capitalized on, uh, on that victory in a number of ways. They, uh, they built multiple arches. We're familiar with the Arch of Titus, but uh, we've discovered, historians have discovered a, that there was another Arch of Titus located on the other end of Rome in the Circus Maximus. It's very unusual for the Romans to have celebrated a victory with two arches. Interestingly, the Arch of Titus that survives was not actually built by Titus himself. It was built by his brother Domitian so that 15 years after the defeat of the Jews, they're still celebrating that victory with the erection of an Arch of Titus. And the reason for that is because it had enduring propaganda value for the Flavian dynasty. They mint um, a, uh, a, uh, a coin series known as the Judea Capta coins. Again, and, and that series lasts for a generation throughout all of the Flavian kings. And again, celebrating the defeat of the Jews they, uh, we, we know that the Colosseum in Rome was paid for out of funds taken from Jerusalem and on the backs of Jewish slaves. Again, something that that uh, that an inscription found in the Colosseum has disclosed. So that the the massive Colosseum built by Vespasian also was associated with this victory. There, are, there are other um, other uh, other ways in which the Romans tried to capitalize on this victory, but the result of it was widespread hostility and anti-Jewish sentiment in Rome at that time. And Josephus's account of the war 
in the Jewish war, which is basically a seven book work, the last six of which basically recount the events from the first century CE, to a certain extent are meant to respond to that anti-Jewish sentiment. And really what he's trying to argue is that the Jewish war should be understood as a product of a small group of rabble-rousers who managed to whip uh, into a frenzy the rest of Jewish society. Jewish society that, as I said before, by being faithful to the Jewish tradition, really were faithful to Rome, to Roman values, but swept into a frenzy by the small group of rabble-rousers to rebel against Rome. That's kind of the story that he tells about the war in the course of this seven book work known as Jewish War, in the and, and it needs to be understood within the context of this anti-Jewish sentiment swirling around Rome. Uh, the first book of Jewish War really is the background to the, to the actual rebellion, and it runs from the rise of the Hashmonaim of the Hasmoneans in the 160s BCE until the death of Herod in 4 BCE. So that's Jewish War in the year 79. Um, his next work is called Antiquities of the Jews. Josephus says that initially, his plan was to write one massive, very ambitious work that would have run from the beginning of creation until the uh, until the fall of Masada in the year 73 CE. He says he realized that it was too ambitious, and so he began with Jewish war, and he turned back to, uh, to writing this more ambitious work, Antiquities of the Jews, in the year 93 or 94. So about 15 years pass until he actually writes again. This is a 20-book work that is much more ambitious because he rewrites Tanakh, rewrites the Hebrew Bible from the beginning of the Torah up until the end of Tanakh in the first 11 books of antiquities. Basically from the end of book 11 until book 20, he talks about post-biblical history and the end of antiquities goes up until uh, the eve of the revolt. I should say that the Jewish war ends uh, right, the work that I alluded to earlier, Jewish war ends with the defeat of the of the Jews at Masada in the year 73. Antiquities ends at the eve of the revolt. And um, his focus here is different, right? What he's trying to do is not just focus on the war, he doesn't even recount the events of the war, really tells a story of Jewish history running from creation until the eve of the revolt with a slightly different purpose. In the preface to Antiquities of the Jews, what he says is, this is going to be a work that talks about divine intervention in history, talks about divine reward for those who are loyal to God, talks about divine punishment of those who are disloyal. And the story he says that he's going to tell about the Jewish tradition is that the Jews are faithful to a set of laws that correspond to the virtues, to virtues that the Romans hold dear, and that the reason that the Jews are able to both promulgate these laws and then remain loyal to them is because of the unique form of political ordering that the Jews um, enjoy. That unique form of political ordering, he says, is not monarchy, is not democracy, but rather is aristocracy, specifically a priestly aristocracy, a priestly aristocracy that enabled the Jews to, uh, to remain faithful to this set of laws that corresponds to virtue and that, and that won them the favor of God. Um, and therefore, as with Jewish war, antiquities really needs to be understood as a work of propaganda in which Josephus is speaking to the Rome of his day and trying to say, don't blame the Jews for the revolt. In fact, the Jewish tradition correctly understood corresponds very well to the values that you Romans celebrate. And so therefore, we need, we need to understand the rebellion as an aberration rather than the norm. We know from other historians of the day, Tacitus maybe being a very good example, Tacitus, uh, basically a younger contemporary of Josephus, Tacitus describes the rebellion basically as a reflection of the character of the Jews. And what Josephus is arguing both in war and in antiquities is that that's not the correct way to understand uh, the war against the Jews, uh, war of the Jews against the Romans. Uh, so antiquities is sort of his second, uh, his second major work. There's really an epilogue to uh, Antiquities, which is his third work known as The Life of Josephus. Life of Josephus, he says, he wrote as an epilogue, so presumably wrote it shortly after the completion of Antiquities, let's call it 94, 95, something like that. And it's really it's not an autobiography so much as it is an account of Josephus's tenure as commander and governor in the Galilee. Much of what I said before is drawn from 
the account that Josephus tells in Life of Josephus. And it needs to be understood, the fact that it's really presented as an epilogue to antiquities, it needs to be understood in light of the message that I outlined before. What Josephus is basically saying is, everything that I've told you in antiquities about Jews' loyalty to the laws as provoking divine favor, and that, that the Jews are able to remain loyal because of this priestly aristocracy that they have in place. Josephus is basically saying, I am the last link in that chain that proves that we are rewarded by God when we remain faithful and that prove the success of a priestly aristocracy. He says he himself is a Kohen. And the, the story that he, tell, that he tells about his tenure in the North is one that returns repeatedly to this theme of divine favor, of divine providence. And so in that way, Life of Josephus really is an epilogue that proves everything that Josephus is trying to say about the Jewish tradition in general. It's not just that Josephus has a real survival instinct. Josephus clearly has a very inflated view of himself. Um, so that's, that's the Life of Josephus. Uh, the final work of Josephus is, is known as Against Appian. Against Appian is his most explicitly apologetic work in which he says he's responding to accusations leveled against the Jews um, and, and various forms of slander. He's, he begins by saying that the, um, he's addressing the claim that the Jewish tradition is not ancient, that the Jewish tradition that the Jewish tradition is really recent in vintage. And what he wants to do is to try to respond to that. Along the way, he also responds to other forms of slander. And what Josephus does most explicitly, but what I've tried to what I've tried to show is the fact that this is actually a theme that crosses all of his writings. What Josephus tries to do is to show actually that the Jewish tradition really reflects core Roman virtues like justice, like courage, like temperance, like piety correctly understood, and therefore the slanders that are directed against the Jews by their opponents are incorrect. Against Appian is not explicitly dated. We assume probably around the year 100, something like that. Um, as far as the question of how Josephus regarded himself, in the beginning of War and, and Antiquities, there's no question that he describes himself as basically a successor to uh, the great Greek historian Thucydides. Um, he says that he's going to write about the war that was, you know, the war to end all wars. He clearly was, he, he clearly regarded himself as having, uh, as having written a work of enduring value on par with that of Thucydides. What he's doing, he says, is he's arguing to an audience that is reading other competing accounts of the war. So part of what he wants to do is to correct the record, but that he had a, an inflated sense of himself as a historian seems to be clear from what he has to say in the beginning of both Warren and, and Antiquities. Putting aside the theological propositions that Josephus, as you explained now, um, raised in his works, divine intervention, putting that aside, how reliable are Josephus's writing and how important are they as a source of what we understand about ancient history and those times. So as far as why they're, you know, their importance for ancient history, they're indispensable. If we just compare what we know about the Second Temple period, for example, with what we know about the Bar Kokhba revolt, we don't have a Josephus to tell us about the Bar Kokhba revolt. And so all that we know about the Bar Kokhba revolt are snippets before the discovery, before the modern discovery of um, hordes of Bar Kokhba coins and some of the letters written to and from Bar Kokhba, we didn't even know Bar Kokhba's actual name. His actual name was Shimon Bar Kosiba. Um, we, and we only knew snippets because we don't have a historian like Josephus for that momentous event. What we have for the Second Temple period, we have a Josephus who gives us an unbroken chronology without which we would have very little knowledge, very little understanding of the period that runs between the composition of Tanakh and the production of the Mishnah in the year 200 CE. So in terms of an understanding of ancient history, we're talking about somebody whose writings are absolutely indispensable. As far as his reliability goes, that's one of the major questions about Josephus. He's clear that he has an agenda. Um, he, he opens, as I said before, he opens by saying that um, in the beginning of Jewish War, he says, I am trying to write something that is even-handed, that is neither too pro-Jewish or too pro-Roman, but at the same time, you'll forgive me if I lament 
about the fate of the Jews. So it's clear that his, you know, that he's sensitive to the plight of the Jews. He's not, uh, he's not reticent to admit that. It's also clear that all historians in antiquity had agendas. So for example, Thucydides says, I'm going to be absolutely objective, but at the same time, I'm not going to hesitate to put into the mouth of my protagonist speeches if I assume that basically the speeches that I'm going to invent are basically faithful to what these uh, to what these protagonists likely said. Josephus is probably doing something similar, probably inventing speeches that he puts into the mouths of his protagonists, probably the speech that is delivered, for example, the famous speech by Elazar ben Yair at Masada and other speeches as well. So it's clear that he takes creative license with his characters and with the events in the same way that all ancient historians would have. Um, the, the fact that he is a player in these events certainly certainly complicates the question about his reliability, as does the fact that he tells the story of men of these events in multiple, multiple versions, in war, in antiquities, in the life of Josephus, that also complicates the picture. And so one of the things that historians try to do is they try to, they try to compare the different accounts, they try to establish what, his, what Josephus's agenda was, try to figure out how what Josephus says intersects with that agenda, try to compare the accounts taking into, into consideration also maybe what we can say about the wider Roman world and how what Josephus says perhaps fits within that world. That is one of the complications. At the same time, we're sort of prisoner to what Josephus says for, you know, because we really have a, a dearth of knowledge, of independent knowledge. Um, historians in general look at Josephus with, health, with healthy skepticism, but have also at the same time developed methodologies that allow us to be relatively certain about much of what Josephus says. What what is Yosipan, and and why is it favored by traditional Jews? One gets the sense in reading works by by traditional Jews that there's tremendous amounts of things that we can learn from Josephus that um, proves or enhances the whole idea of the tradition passing down from generation to generation. Why are they looking at the, what is this Yosipan and why is that favored as opposed to the works that you outlined just now? Sure. So um, Sefer Yosipun is a work that was probably written somewhere in the Byzantine Empire in the 10th century. The modern editor of Sefer Yosipun, whose name is, is David Flusser, speculates, he's very specific, he says it was written in southern Italy in the year 953 CE. So historians aren't necessarily certain about the location and the time, but in general, the assumption is probably sometime in the 10th century, almost certainly in a Greek-speaking area in um, in the Byzantine Empire. Sorry, not in a Greek, in somewhere in the Byzantine Empire, somewhere in the 10th century. Um, perhaps in, in Italy, perhaps not. Um, it was written by somebody who probably was not himself conversant with Greek, but was certainly conversant with Latin, it's become traditionally recognized as having originated with Josephus. Now, the complication here is that, um, first of all, there are a couple of complications. One complication is that not all of the manuscripts attribute the authorship of Sefer Yosifun to somebody who lived during the Second Temple period. Many of the manuscripts do, but not all of them. That's one complication. The, the second complication is that when these manuscripts do attribute their composition to someone from the Second Temple period, they don't attribute it to somebody named Josephus. They attribute it to somebody named Yosef ben Gurion. Uh, Yosef ben Gurion, we know from Josephus, was one of the leaders of the rebellion, and he's mentioned in the course of Sefer Yosifun. There seems to be some question within Sefer Yosifun about whether this person, Yosef ben Gurion, is actually Josephus, and it's for that reason that Jews traditionally have understood this work as being actually of uh, a Second Temple origin, written by this person, Yosef ben Gurion, who is mistakenly identified with Josephus. It's written in Hebrew, um, not based on Josephus's Greek compositions, but rather based on a couple of other sources. It's based on a Latin paraphrase of Jewish war, which actually, fourth century Latin paraphrase of Jewish war, which actually was produced by Christians, and it actually, in its origins, has a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment, which was obviously excised by the author of Sefer Yosifun. So he gets a lot of his information from this Latin paraphrase. 
He also relied on a Latin translation of the first 16 books of antiquities. And he also uses the Latin translation of some of the works of the Apocrypha in order to produce Sefer Yosifun, which is basically covers much of the Second Temple period through the story of uh, of Masada. The reason that it's become so revered by Jews is, first of all, it's written in very elegant Hebrew um, for an audience that really, um, until the dawn of modernity, did not know Greek, did not have access to the original. Um, interestingly, I said before that Josephus says that he wrote early on a Semitic version of Jewish words, Semitic predecessor. One, um, the um, forgetting the name, but uh, Rabbi who writes the, writes the preface to an edition of Yosifun that was written, it's published in the 1970s, says that Yosifun actually is that Semitic original that actually does go back to the time of the long lost original is actually Sefer Yosifun. Um, it's become revered by Jews because it's in Hebrew, because it's understood by Jews to have originated during the Second Temple period with this member of the rebellion. Again, as I said, unlikely that that's the case. Historians assume that that's not the case. Um, it's been translated into a variety of languages, Yiddish, Ladino, Czech, Polish, English, German. And it's important for Jews because Jews don't have an independent tradition, for example, about the events surrounding the story of Tushimov, right? at least as they relate to the destruction of Bayechani. How do you know about the events associated with Tushimov? It's only from, really from Sefer Yosifun, with the exception of certain Midrashim, in rabbinic literature. It actually became so important in terms of the liturgy of Tisha B'Av. They actually, there's a, a 15th century manuscript of the Kinos from Tisha B'Av that have surrounding the Kinos, the uh, Sefer Yosifun, which suggests that Sefer Yosifun was basically being read almost as commentary on the Kinos. Um, and so they took on great importance, both in terms of the understanding of also of the story of Hanukkah. Story of Hanukkah and Tisha B'Av became very important. And for that reason, Yosifun, both because it's in Hebrew and because it's understood to have originated then, and because much of the story really um, resonates with Jews, it's become an indispensable resource for Jews. Um, there wasn't a rivalry between it and Josephus's Greek writings in the absence of Jewish knowledge of Greek. So, so again, Yosifun, no one is saying that this is a or are they saying this is parts of this are original writings of Josephus? Is that one proposition about Josephus? Historians, right? Historians, historians, um, no, no legitimate historian claims that it goes back to Josephus. Um, the claim is written in the 10th century by a Jew who knew Latin but not Greek, who is relying secondhand on Josephus. Latin paraphrases and Latin translations, the Jewish tradition has associated it with this person, Yosef Ben-Gurion, who is named as a rebel. And I, I should just, it, interesting, this Yosef Ben-Gurion shows you how important um, Yosef or Yosefun is. Um, you know, David Ben-Gurion um, actually, actually took on the name of Ben-Gurion from this Yosef Ben-Gurion. Um, Ben-Gurion's name is actually his, his given name is actually Gruen. Um, he changed his name to Ben-Gurion as a sign of how important uh, Yosef Ben-Gurion was. But, but there, so there's a, that difference of opinion between sort of the traditional outlook and the historical outlook in terms of the origins of this work. I mean, no one would say that, that David Ben-Gurion should have been called David Josephus. No correct, right, correct, okay. exactly. Well, um, I should just add, Yosefun itself is a, um, a Greek version of Yosef, right? So that's that that's where the Yosef, the word Yosefun doesn't actually appear in the work, but that's it comes to be known as that because it's uh, because of the sort of Greek, um, some sort of Greek milieu or something, right? That, that and that's where Yosefun comes from. The name Yosefun comes from. Um, just again, uh, really to in conclusion, just uh, examples of Josephus presenting. Asada or Herod, biblical accounts. Um, in summary, just how does he present those? And again, I think as you had mentioned, some of those accounts are really um, some of the only historical accounts that we have about events like Masada. Sure. So um, story of Masada, as Josephus tells us, in some ways, 
is corroborated by the archaeological finds that have turned up. Certainly the archaeologists who excavated Masada, um, Israeli general Yigal Yadin, who's also an outstanding archaeologist, thought that archaeology corroborated the events described in Josephus, a story that's described in Josephus. You have the members of the Sikari who had um, occupied the old fortress palace of Josephus named Masada and were there for a long time during the war. After the destruction of the Second Temple, the Romans lay siege to Masada, basically the final outpost of the Jews. And um, in 73 CE, they basically succeed in overcoming Masada. And the story that Josephus tells is of this suicide pact, interestingly um, echoes in many ways the suicide pact that I referred to earlier, um, in which Josephus participated. And the really important part about Josephus's account of the Masada is the speech that precedes the actual commission of suicide. It's a speech that is delivered by the rebel leader Elazar ben Yair, in which Elazar ben Yair actually tries to convince the Jews who are there to commit suicide. They participate in the suicide pact. Again, I'm drawing lots along the lines of uh, the way that Josephus describes his own pact. And uh, when the Romans ascend to Masada, they discover that everyone has been killed. Josephus says that he heard about the events from a couple of people that had survived, that had hidden, that hadn't participated in this pact. But it's very likely that what Josephus is doing is he's putting words into the mouth of Elazar ben Yair, trying to characterize the rebels not as heroes, um, so much as people who've been punished by God for the role that they played in the rebellion. Again, Josephus is condemning the rebellion, and this is sort of the need to commit suicide for Josephus, who regards suicide as a sin, as sort of divine providence in its final iteration during the course of the war. Um, that That's sort of the story that, uh, that Josephus tells of, uh, tells of Masada, uh, did you? I'm sorry. Did you ask about another story in? in uh, no, just again other accounts. But Masada, that that's that's fine. I think you mentioned before about Herod and and some of the biblical accounts that he kind of goes through in in some of his uh, earlier works. Right. Yeah. Josephus talks about Herod in a couple of his a uh, couple of works, both in war and in antiquities. He actually presents Herod in slightly different ways in each of them. You know, we we imagine Herod as this cruel, impious stooge of the Romans, it's actually more complicated than that. In Jewish war, he actually paints Herod in very positive terms as a public figure, paints him in very dark terms as a private figure, um, but he describes him as basically courageous, as pro-Roman, as representing everything that is good about the Jews in war. Um, in antiquities, he paints him in much darker terms, even in his public face, he describes him as impious, as betraying uh, Roman value as betraying Jewish values. And each of these portraits of Herod is really consistent with the story that he's trying to tell in both Jewish war and antiquities. And Herod plays an important role precisely because he figures prominently in advancing Herod's, uh, in advancing Josephus's agenda in each of those works. Okay. Uh, this has been fascinating. We, we could go on and on. This is really just the, the, the tip of the iceberg um, on, on Josephus and the period and, and urge all our listeners and viewers to um, purchase um, Professor Mermelstein's books. I, I think someone had told me that some of the classes on the subjects can be audited um, by outsiders. Yes, this is true. Yes, our the the course that I taught on Josephus can be audited. Um, our graduate courses at Yeshiva University and the Rebel Graduate School of Jewish Studies are are mostly um, mostly uh, being given either on Zoom or in hybrid form, okay. available to to be audited. Um, that's my my plug for Yeshiva University. Absolutely, absolutely. Urge all our listeners and viewers to take advantage of that. And again, uh, Professor Rosie, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it very much. Sure. Thanks for having me, Ari.